Social media is a new level of media danger. We become both the star and the spectator. We become the center of our media, which is something that's very different. We not only become the star of our own story that we project out there, we watch other people look at us and affirm us. And so we spectate others spectating us. It becomes very addictive that dopamine starts shooting in our brain saying, yeah, we want more social affirmation. And so we go back to our social media feeds to, to project ourselves and to watch other people affirm us. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Tony Ranke. Tony serves as senior writer for Desiring God, is the host of the Ask Pastor John podcast, and is the author of a number of books, including 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You and Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. Today, Tony and I discuss the media-saturated world in which we live reflecting on how social media is changing the way we think about ourselves, especially kids, the benefits of the occasional digital detox, and what something called cultural imprinting has to do with the massive success of the latest Avengers movie. Let's get started. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the CrossFit Podcast today. Oh, it's my honor. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by starting where you begin with your book, and you open the book with this what I found to be a very provocative, somewhat ominous, honestly, line. And here it is. Never in history have manufactured images formed the ecosystem of our lives. They do now. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm quoting Daniel Borstein uh, there, who was writing you know, 25, 30 years ago, uh, looking at the, the media age that he was living in. And seeing that this thing was going to become even more and more potent, images were going to become more transferable. They were going to be more appealing than our real lives will become. Um, he saw these things far off, and we're living in the fulfillment of kind of his prophecy, and that is that uh, we live in this almost a virtual reality age where everywhere that we look, there's some mediated image, some produced image, vying for our attention, vying for our time. And, and those images really are better, more appealing than our real lives. So we would rather watch television than, you know, endure some of the things that we monotonously endure in our lives. And, and he saw that coming. And uh, virtual reality is really just uh, a fulfillment of what he saw coming. As I finished competing spectacles, uh, as I finished work on the book, I got an email notification in the top of my screen. I, I, I kid you not, this was like the last 15 <laughs> minutes I was writing this book. And this this little email badge popped up and said, uh, you know, it was it was something about our, our local science museum now having an IMAX theater that wrapped around the audience. So mm -hmm. like you could look up and down and and the screen like bulged out uh, trying to, you know, wrap the audience with with images. And that that's what Borstein saw coming. And that is our world today. Uh, images just come at us from all different directions. We're surrounded by an ecosystem of produced images and, and spectacles. And as Christians, we just have to we have to reckon with that and realize what that means for us. Yeah, I'm struck by how often you mention Borstein and other thinkers, but then science fiction is another category that seemed to, in a lot of ways, predict this kind of stuff. And I think it might have been easy in the past to to view that as kind of far-fetched out there, even even when, say, The Matrix came out uh, yeah. not that long ago. 
you know, it's, it's just science fiction. It's not reality. And yet it does feel like as we take a step back and look at where we're at today, it feels more and more like that than maybe we once thought. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, Fahrenheit 451 was a prophetic book that looked at uh, the fourth wall of having this this entire wall that was a screen that you interacted with in a way that um, it was part of the daily rhythm of a, of a household was the, the getting to know personalities through this screen. It was just part of the domestic lifestyle in, in that book. And you're right. I mean, the sci-fi novelists are going to see things from a long ways away that, you know, it may seem far-fetched at first, but then when you start to realize what it means for us, it, it, it becomes less and less fictional. Hmm. So we're recording this in early May of 2019, and probably the biggest media spectacle right now was the release of the newest Avengers movie, mm-hmm. which which smashed the previous opening weekend box office record when it yeah. earned. I think it was like $1.2 billion worldwide, and it's it's on track to become the highest grossing film of all time. Did mm-hmm. you see the movie? And if so, what did you what did you think about it? I did see the movie. Um yeah, my, my family, we love going to to see Avengers movies. We have for a number of years. Um uh it's something that we talk about, we talk through we process the movies together, which I think is really one of the great values of, of, of good films is that you can go with friends or you can go with family, watch it, and then afterwards you can process it. And uh, you can use it to teach a worldview. You can use it uh, with a gospel lens to see where self-sacrificing love is present. And in this Avengers movie, that becomes very evident at the end of the movie, um, similar to like the Harry Potter films and books, the the self-sacrificing love becomes a prominent theme uh, within the book, and it can be very deeply, deeply moving. Mm. And so, you know, I have a shelf of books that talk about how to, you know, watch cultural movies through gospel lenses, and that's something that we need to do, and it's something I, I love to do. But, you know, as I looked at that shelf of books, I came to realize, like, there's a missing book here. There's There's a book that needs to be written about when is it time for us to step away from the spectacles of even great movies. Mm. When is that time? How do we as Christians live by faith in this world that just presses us with with sights, these CGI sights that are just spectacular and getting better and better, whether we're talking about gaming and how gaming just pulls you into these, these landscapes that have been designed by some of the most you know beautiful designers that, in, in history. Um, they pull us in. These movies, these CGI wonders pull us in. And and I thought, like, we need a book also that says there's a time to step away from all of that, to to desaturate our lives from our screens, to detox from it all. And so that's the book that I set out to write. One of the things that I, I noticed that struck me about even the release of this Avengers movie, uh, beyond just the spectacle that it, it is in itself, you know, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. the CGI yeah. is just out of this world, and it's just it's mind blowing to watch. Uh, but was also just the the way that it dominated the media landscape more generally. I mean, TV commercials and interviews and social media posts and promotions, you know, digital ads plastered all over websites and mm-hmm. video reviews and essays on YouTube. It really felt like the movie was everywhere, literally everywhere. Yeah. Did you notice that? And then. How do we escape from that? When you talk about the need to pull back from this mm-hmm. media that just saturates us, it f- sometimes feels like that's impossible to do in our day and age. It does feel impossible to do. Um, I think you have to demask what the advertisers are trying to do, um, and that is they're trying to pull off something that's called cultural imprinting. 
And cultural imprinting is this idea. Um, well, let, let me use an illustration. If you see the same advertisement on television over and over and over and over again, what it does is it, it creates this impression in your mind that surely you're not the only one that's seen this advertisement. Surely many other people have seen this advertisement. And if you want to press this a little bit further, if you go to the Super Bowl and you can make an assumption that like most of the United States is watching the Super Bowl, therefore, mm -hmm. most of the United States is watching these advertisements. Therefore, the assumption in all of it, this cultural imprinting, is that whatever consumer good or service that's being advertised is being, is being imprinted into the cultural imagination. So if I buy this car, I can assume that everyone in the culture is going to view me a certain way because I know everybody in the culture has seen this advertisement. Mm. And so through the cultural imprinting and the reason why we see advertisements over and over and over again and why the Super Bowl ads are so expensive and so valuable is that it, it, it imprints in all of us this idea that this cultural product has a certain worldview, certain aesthetic, certain value to it. And if you, if you buy it, if you use it, if you wear it, then the culture will see you in that light. And so that's why you see the same ads over and over again. That's why you see ads that are so expensive and so prominent in the Super Bowl is that cultural imprinting. So you have overlapping spectacles. Um, in the Super Bowl, you have, yeah, you know, you have a, some superstar will play the halftime show. Of course, you've got the two best teams in football. You've got movie stars down on the field in the sidelines, you know. If it's on NBC, NBC is going to have some cast from one of their shows are going to be, you know, lounging on the sidelines, and NBC will cut to show them. And so you, now, now you're promoting one of NBC's shows during the Super Bowl. And, and then, of course, you have all these advertisements, and you have Hollywood, you have gaming, you have the music world, you have all these competing spectacles sort of getting – um, imported into this one huge cultural event. And so when it comes to Avengers and it comes to, you know, I don't know, Happy Meals with the Avengers on it or whatever, you know, <laughs> it's part of that cultural imprinting. It's to make it make it so that you could not live in America and not know that there's this huge new movie release. Mm. And of course, everybody knows there's a, this huge movie release because it's been culturally imprinted. And of course, when you do that well, you make billions of dollars. Well, I'm struck by when you were describing cultural imprinting, there is this communal aspect to it. There's, it's, it's tapping into this need that we have to be part of a community, to be viewed yep. and accepted by that broader community. Uh, do you feel like advertisers are tapping into that, that human need that we have? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we put on identities. The, the, the spectacles that we see are certain identities that we can put on and try on. You know, talking about the Avengers movie, we went and we saw it in 3D. Like, if we're going to see this movie, we're going to go all out. <laughs> That's right. you know? So I am not anti anti movies at all. Uh, we did the the full thing with the 3D glasses and everything. And it, you know, for me, what was so moving about? Okay, so I can't give away any. I'm trying not to give away spoilers. This is. Do we need a spoiler warning right uh, now? Oh, maybe we need to. It, um, I feel like it's been long enough that people should have seen it by now if they really care. Okay, yeah, this this is what happens at the end. Um, my son has been an Iron Man fan from, my youngest son has been a fan of Iron Man since he was very, very little. 
and uh, we saw the movies when he was young and every Halloween he would dress up as Iron Man. He had these like Iron Man pajamas and then an Iron Man plastic mask that would go over his face and he <laughs> would, you know, pretend like he has these powers to shoot lasers out of his palms, you know, and such. And so when I when when you come to the end of this movie and the death of Iron Man happens and it is weighty. And all of the CGI and all of the booming, loud bass all becomes quiet and silent. And you're just met face to face with true self-sacrificing love in a way that just pulls the heart out of your chest. Uh, when you're in that moment, and they do such a great job of just dragging this out and, and letting the weight of his death land on you. I mean, for me, part of that was... I'm sitting right next to my young son who's now kind of grown out of the Iron Man phase. And so as I'm watching this, it's part of me realizing like the childhood of my son that was so bound up in Iron Man is over. Like Mm. he doesn't feel moved by this. He's not moved to tears by this. He's sort of moved on from that. And so as I'm sitting there, it, it really, as a dad, just realizing, you know, there's these seasons in the lives of your kids and, and he's now passing out of that phase. He's no longer in the Iron Man child phase and he's moving on to other things, more serious things. Um, that for me, like landed really hard. I mean, I think mm. that's mostly why I started to tear up in that moment because it mm. just re- reminded me of all that. But looking back at my son, like all of us in some way, wear the costumes of the spectacles that we're most attracted to. Um, You know, if you're a teen and you want to be approved by the goth community, you're going to wear a certain kind of goth clothing. Uh, If you work on Wall Street, you're going to wear a certain kind of costume that's going to make you favorable and approved in Wall Street. We all wear these costumes, and they're all conditioned by some sort of preconceived cultural assumptions that go along with them. So whether it's Iron Man or Wall Street or a goth, um, we're all trying on these different identities to mm. see, like, who are we? And um, so that's what spectacles do. In a lot of cases, they give us new identities to see and then to try on. And, of course, you see this in Halloween. That's when it really stands out to me. You see it so obviously yeah. as, you know, you see Wonder Woman, Superwoman, what, whatever it is, you're going to see the, the cultural imprinting happening and, and manifesting in what kids want to dress up as. Well, I think that's such a helpful emphasis because sometimes we can think of spectacles as you've been describing them, especially media spectacles, as something that we consume passively. And there is a sense in which that's true. Yeah. But but you're stressing that they really do have an impact on on how we view ourselves, uh, much more how we actually then present ourselves to others. Yeah, they absolutely they do. Um, this goes into just the nature of what spectacle is. And, and, and the gospel comes in and it flips our reality. Uh, the gospel flips unreality into reality, and it flips what we thought was reality and exposes it as unreality. And and the gospel is in part a judgment on everything about what is solid, and a judgment on what is worthless. We we start to see what is solid and what is worthless because in our world we tend to think what we what is seen is the thing that is stable and certain, and we tend to think what we cannot see. Uh, whatever is out of sight, out of mind, those things are ephemeral, they're unsubstantial. All that matters is what I can physically see with my eyes right now. And the gospel arrives and it flips that on its head because according to the Apostle Paul, in reality, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.18. So the most enduring things in the universe are presently the things 
we can't see. They're invisible. And the things that are uh, that, that lack substance are the things that we can see around us. So it is a crazy way to think about the world, mm. you know? I mean, mm. and it's even more incredible in this age of, of digital images or produced images, you know, because like never before uh, we live inside a mirage of mirrors, a, a mirage of screens all around us. And it's not that our images that we see are fake or false, um, but 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 they're they're not the truest and most substantial things in the universe. Mm. They're well, not. Well, and I'm struck by uh, kind of drawing on that. One of the consequences of the fact that some of the truest, the most important things in the universe are intangible, are things we mm-hmm. can't see. They're not right in front of us. Uh, is that we are so prone to fill in any moment that doesn't have something like that in front of us with, yeah. with distraction, where we're yes. constantly seeking distraction and, and it leaves us less time for, for actually thinking of contemplating some of those things that are, are more important. And so as you think about your own life, what forms of media are you tempted to go towards when you are when, when you're bored, when you need distraction, when you want distraction? Yeah, well, I mean, images are the, are the things that I go to. I mean, Instagram uh, or Facebook images slash videos. Images are th- the one thing that we can speed up. We can, we can, it's the one sense that we can process quickest. And so we can thumb through images really quick and, mm. and passively. You can't do that with smells, for example. Smells take a little while to, to process. Um, there's different estimates between, um, you know, 45 to 90 seconds to really process a smell, especially a new smell. You have to process, it takes a long time. Uh, the ear is less easy to speed up. Mm. Uh, you can't really listen to music at two times speed. You lose something of the essence of it. But with images, you can speed them up much, much quicker. It's the most uh, acceleratable of the senses. And so it, it's, uh, it's also passive as well. It's a very passive sort of way to take things in. So you can sit down on Instagram and just flip through hundreds and hundreds of images and just waste a lot of time. And that that would be, you know, for me, uh, where the temptation is at is in those images. And so you need to press, a, press back from those things mm-hmm. and uh, not be co- so consumed with what can be captured on film. Um, and I think you know, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, and 5, those are those chapters that really set forth the contrast between the half reality of what we see with our eyes and the full reality that's right now invisible for us. We can't, we can't see it. And what does it look like, practically speaking, for you to pull back from those things, to apply Paul's words and uh, limit your media mm-hmm. consumption? Yeah, so I do two different um, digital detoxes per year. Those are typically seven to 10 days long. One is more of just a straight digital de- detox where I'm not on social media. Um, uh, though sometimes I'll have to work, so I'll have to do email and things like that. But I'll be able to cut myself off from social media for about seven to ten days once a year, and then w- another time a year, uh, I'll do a two-week digital detox, and that will coincide with a personal reading retreat and family vacation. Hmm. Um, so once a year, my wife and I get away, and um, we're, we're in Minneapolis, so we tend to go away in the winter down to Phoenix <laughs> or somewhere warm in the winter, and we'll just take a stack of books and for five or six days in this season of life, we can do it. Uh, we can we can get away and just read books and, and process those books and talk about what we're reading and uh, invest in our marriage and but but really pull away from from social media because for me, I really have to get back to reading long books in a sustained way 
to flex the muscle that is my mind and and my concentration needs that it's 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 like training mm. um just that that season once a year is so valuable uh for me to step away from digital media and uh to just re recalibrate myself to the glacial pace of of book reading which is a healthy pace um so that's kind of how i do it one a digital detox of a week to 10 days and then a two week digital detox that's more of a reading retreat and uh, also coincides typically with a family retreat or a, a family vacation. So, so describe what that feels like to do that detox. I'm sure there are many people listening who have never tried that before. <laughs> yeah, how would, yeah. You just, how would you describe the feelings that you, that you wrestle with? Well, day one hurts like crazy. Um, day two is painful. Day three, it's numb. Day four, it you start to get energy back. It's you start to get your concentration back. Um, at least for me, day five, I'm starting to dream about future book projects or mm-hmm. or big things I want to accomplish. Um, and and then it goes from there. But it, it those first few days are really tough, really really challenging because you're pulled back. You want that social approval. You want to be seen by your peers and so there's this 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 pull especially if when we're on vacation and we're seeing cool things and maybe taking pictures of things that are that I'd want to immediately share to have that impulse to say no 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 I'm not going to share that immediately because I'm off I'm offline it's good it's recalibrating but it hurts it hurts in day 1 hurts in day 2 there's kind of a numb sensation on day 3 and then by day 4 something starts to change in your mind and you can start to dream and think and, and plan in a way that is very hard when the impulse is to turn towards social media. Yeah, I'm struck that social media seems similar to a lot of other forms of media that dominate our world today, but it also seems different in some ways with its own yeah. unique dangers. Do you think that social media is particularly dangerous to, to Christians today? And if so, what are some of those dangers that you've identified? Yeah, social media is a new level of media danger, and this is why you know if you read a lot of Neil Postman and you read these guys back in the '80s and '90s, they were talking more about television and sort of a live linear television of sitting in front of a TV and not having control over rewinding, fast forwarding, pausing it. And so, when when you read a Neil Postman, I agree with a lot of what he says, but he he's just not addressing then social media and the new level of challenges that that get raised with that. And uh, in my book, Competing Spectacles, what I'm talking about there in social media is talking about this this new dynamic of approval where we become both the star and the spectator in our media. Hmm. We become the center of our media, which is something that's very different than what Postman maybe could have seen coming. Uh, McLuhan, maybe those guys could have seen this coming, but it is a stark, a stark reality that we live with that we can be, become performers before others and we capture and edit ourselves, our, our own being and, and what we say and do, we can edit that and put ourselves before our peers for their approval. Not only that, but then we watch our peers approve us through ticks of, uh, of affirmation, uh, Instagram likes, Facebook likes, whatever it is. We not only become the star of our own story that we project out there, we watch other people look at us and affirm us. And so we mm. spectate others spectating us. And there's this crazy multifaceted dynamic. It's not unlike first person shooter uh, video games as well. There's, there's a similarity between um, being on the, the screen and shooting 
you know, a zombie horde with, a, you know, some sort of a, a, a laser gun. You know, you're the star of this story and you're spectating, you're watching yourself. That's similar in social media, too. It's just slightly offset so that we can we can project things and be the star and then watch people like us. And, and we behold the whole interaction. And that, that's what becomes very, very, um, it becomes very addictive. That dopamine starts shooting in our brain saying, yeah, we mm-hmm. want more social affirmation. And so we go back to our social media feeds to, to project ourselves and to watch other people affirm us. Yeah, and I'm struck that one of the other differences between, you know, a gaming type of context and social media is that no one, you know, your avatar in a game isn't, no one's confusing that for the real you. And yet yeah. social media seems to... Uh, it's really designed for us to to truly uh, present ourselves online as true selves, right. uh, as the as a true representation of what we're actually like in the real world. Yeah, it totally is. And you know, in twelve ways, I I share the story. I, my my book, Twelve Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, also through Crossway. Um, there was a couple of different stories of ladies who went into debt because they were buying all of this fancy sushi. These uh, uh, these swimsuits, these different things that they were trying to project on their Instagram feed as, you know, hey, this is part of my daily life, but mm-hmm. going into deep debt because they were buying all of these sort of stage props for their Instagram feed. And I, I assume that's actually not uncommon, that, you know, Instagram is more of a staged sort of performance of someone's life. Um, maybe not so much edited. I mean, I hear people talk about Instagram being an edited form of people's lives. Maybe that's true. Um, but definitely staged. We stage things so that we, you know, present the best side of us or we we spend the money that we wouldn't normally spend so that people get an appearance of who we are that's that maybe doesn't match up to reality. That's a that's a big consideration. Mm. Yeah. One of the other things that I that I also often think about when it comes to social media is the impact that it could have on my kids. You know, I have I have young kids at home, and honestly, sometimes I feel nervous about the world that they're growing up in, not mm. just the, the broader media saturation that we exist in, but specifically yeah. social media. And it feels like, although I'm only in my, my early 30s, it does feel like the world today is radically different than it was when I was a young kid. Yeah. You know, kids nowadays have smartphones in their pockets, and they're connected to every fact and every song and every image and every video and then all of each other as 10-year-olds. Yeah. Do you think about the impact that uh, not just the modern media landscape but social media in particular will have on kids today and on, you know, their emergence into adulthood in the future? I do, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a growing consensus of a cultural language that if you're not if you're not tapped into that consensus of cultural language, you're left out. So if you don't see the viral tweet, you don't see the viral image, you don't see the movie, you don't see, you listen to the album, you don't wear the clothes, you're, you're sort of left out. And so we're going to have to train our kids to be like, that's okay. That's okay to, to feel the fear of missing out and actually missing out. That's okay. That's one of the things that's built into the gospel story is that uh, we're missing out on a million things a day in this world that we that we're not going to experience. We can't hike every mountain. We can't see every ocean. We can't enjoy every beach. Every beautiful beach is on Instagram. Well, you might not be able to see every beautiful beach, but the the gospel promise for us is that if we keep our eyes on Christ now, if we keep our hope on him, there is a place in his presence that will make up for every missing out that we've experienced in this life. It's called heaven. 
Um, it's not an ethereal place where we float around in clouds. It's a, it's, it's a recreated version of this world that we will get to explore and enjoy forever. And so somehow that principle has to be communicated to our kids that, yes, you're going to miss out. And yes, <laughs> Jesus knows you're going to miss out and feel like you're being left out. Um, but there's something greater to come. And that's why this walking by faith and not by sight is a walking for it's a walking towards what is more solid and eternal and satisfying and giving up by faith all of the things that present themselves to our eyes as being a worthy alternative, but seeing through that and realizing that, no, there's something greater to come. Yeah, I'm struck by something you write early on in your book. Uh, you say, why do we seek spectacles? It's because we're human hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Mm-hmm. Our hearts seek splendor as our eyes scan for greatness. And I think that's really helpful because sometimes we can react to the this insatiable desire for spectacle that we sense in our own hearts, and mm-hmm. we see it manifest in our media consumption habits or uh, impulses, compulsions. And we, we can think that that desire is itself a problem. But really, I think, as you're stressing here, that it's there is something inherently human about the desire for mm-hmm. uh, to, to see glory, but we just need to make sure we're calibrating in the right direction. Absolutely. That, that, that meditation comes out of Augustine's thoughts on creation and glory and why is it that we're drawn to theater? Why is it we're drawn to the Colosseum? Why is it we're drawn to hunting, to nature? And what he's saying there is that there is an, ex, an expanse in the human soul that cannot be filled by all the spectacles of this world. You, if you put every spectacle that you could possibly see in this world into the human soul, it wouldn't be full because it's made for this divine glory. And so we cannot, we, what we need to do is enjoy the glories of this world as a sort of a, a deja vu moment, the sense of I, the, I I sense the glory, the beauty in this, but I know that the thing that I see is not really the source of the beauty, but it's just an echo. It's a as a glancing glimmer of some greater, more um, satisfying reality, which is God, which is being in His presence, and so we live with that reality of of we ex- we enjoy some really tremendous beauty and glories in this world, but it's not the thing that we're after. It's just pointing to the God who, if we are pure in heart, we will see him. You know, that's the promise that Jesus puts out before us. Blessed are the pure in heart. And I think you can apply that to spectacles. Those who don't feed themselves on impure and worthless spectacles, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So this promise of seeing God, the, the ultimate beauty, is when then our soul is, is full to capacity and overflowing in delight. And, and, and that's, that's what we're created for. So every glimmer of delight in this world is just pointing us to that. Maybe as a last question, um, as you've noted a couple of times, spectacles aren't a new thing. Uh, even just looking at you know, the history of modern media, 100 years ago we had the radio, then we had television and movies, and then the internet age dawned. And now we're into the social media age. Mm-hmm. As you as you think about the future, where do you see that going? Do you have a sense for what the next era of media saturation might look like for us? And then, you know, what advice would you have for as we think about moving into that era? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, 
You know, I, I recently, just a couple of days ago, saw one of these videos where, you know, it's like NBA playoffs, uh, the kiss cam or dance cam or whatever is, you know, roving the audience. And, you know, the dance cam zooms into, uh, you know, some usher in the second deck, you know, some random guy, he's just standing there and all of a sudden he starts like dancing, you know, and it's like, okay, that's funny. And then the <laughs> camera goes to somebody else and then it comes back to the same guy. And now he's doing like backflips and you realize like he's a professional dancer that was staged mm. that was put there. I think, you know, that's humorous. I mean, it was funny the first time we saw it and now like every team does it. Like it's, it's old. It's like a trope now that everybody does is sort of planting some spectacle within a crowd and then making it appear like it was a spontaneous thing. That's, that's a funny version of what I think is going to become more serious. And that is the spectacle makers are just getting really, really good at planting things to make us believe or want or act a certain way. And I think, as the attention market, as the attention merchants, as they're called, become better and better at sort of staging spectacles that it is hard to decipher, like, is this real or is this fake? Um, I think it's going to just become more and more of a challenge to discern the difference between, like, is this legitimate? Should I be outraged by this? Or did somebody put a whole bunch of editing into this to make a clip sound more uh, explosive than it really is? Uh, mm. to gain political favor or to stigmatize a, a political pos position. There are things that make me nervous uh, going forward into how media is going to be manipulated, and um, we're going to have to be discerning uh, about where do we put our outrage, where do we put our support, where do we put our money, where do we put our votes, and not be swayed by the spectacle, because I think the spectacle makers are just going to get better and better at what they do. Mm. That's a that's a pretty sounds kind of bleak to be honest. It's bleak in the sense that the blurring of the line between real and unreality is is going to continue to get blurrier. Uh, but the reality is that God has God has given us His revealed word on what is true and what is real, what is substantial, and those things are unseen. And so it really comes back to a question of faith. Like, are you going to live your life based on what you see? Or are you going to live your life based on what you can't see? And that's always going to be the tension for Christians uh, to live by faith and not by sight. Um, to realize, you know, when I'm going through pain in this life and I'm bleeding and I've got Band-Aids and I need surgery and I'm in the hospital, whatever it is that God is using those seasons of what looks like just a lot of bleak, painful things He's using that to create an even more substantial thing with greater weight of glory that I'll experience in the future. Hmm. So what I see is the suffering. What God sees is the, the thing to come that is going to make up for every missing out and every sorrow and every pain here. And so as the spectacle makers get better and better, Christians are going to have to press into faith and truly trust and believe and treasure and delight in the things that they can't see. Um, but that's that's always been the challenge. You can read Augustine, Tertullian, the Puritans, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, I believe, is really going against this this age of spectacle, even in Colossae. So I don't think it's it's anything new. It's been going on for millennia. We're just caught up in the the latest manifestation of this these competing spectacles, and it is it's is more of a challenge because the spectacles are just always in our face. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us about uh, these competing spectacles that we are confronted with every day and, and offering some real 
biblical wisdom for thinking about these things and, and moving forward with faith, as you said. Thanks, Matt. That was Tony Ranke reflecting on what it means to live wisely in our media-saturated world. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.